Well, we want to welcome you this morning to Plum Creek Chapel, and uh, as always, I always like to remind our folks that are watching online, hey, if you're ever in the Denver area, please come by and see us. We, uh, we have a wonderful fellowship here, great church, and uh, we'd love to have you visit with us on a Sunday or Wednesday. If you're passing through on vacation, uh, come on by Plum Creek Chapel in Sedalia, Colorado. This morning, we're going to continue our What Lies Ahead series. And before we do that, just want to remind you of a couple of things. First of all, uh, check out the Not By Works website from time to time. We're always doing stuff every week. We change the website every day to upload different uh, content, new uh, interviews and, and messages that I've done in different uh, contexts. Of course, everything we do at Plum Creek Chapel is uh, uploaded to uh, notbyworks.org. Uh, but that's where you'll find the book that serves as kind of the foundation for this study and those of you here at the church you can pick one up uh, at the back but if you go to notbyworks.org you'll find this week was uh, we did three different uh, interviews we were on the Brandon House show Thursday night that video and audio both the podcast and the video are available at the website so you can check that out and then we did our regular Tuesday session on the Christian Underground News Network and we focused on the Hegelian dialectic and if you're not familiar with what that is, uh, you know, give that a listen. I think it'll be very instructive. And then we're going to come back to that next Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, and pick up where we left off uh, there with Curtis Chamberlain. And then on Monday, we uh, did a, an interview on the John Loeffler show, Steel on Steel. That was a shorter one, about 26 minutes, I think. And uh, we talked about how to discern the times uh, that we're in. Uh, of course, the new book is still uh, available out there. You can check it out at spiritoftheantichrist.org. Or again, those of you here at Plum Creek Chapel, we've got a whole uh, stack of them there at the back for you to pick up. So what I want to do this morning is uh, some more Q&A. I, I always get great feedback when we do that. Everybody always says, oh, you should do more of that and more of that. So I want to do some more of that, but I do want to spend the first little bit introducing the next uh, subject that's part of this series that we're going to do, and that is uh, the kingdom. So if you look at our chart that kind of gives an overview of the end times uh, in a graphic uh, form here, over on the far right, you'll see the messianic kingdom. Here's another chart that kind of highlights that uh, for you, and it's also got the tribulation judgments in there. Now you'll notice uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about the second coming. That's, you know, Battle of Armageddon and second coming. We've discussed that, looked at some key passages, spent uh, nine or ten weeks on that. And then after a period of 75 days, according to Daniel chapter 12, which he doesn't give us, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of data about why the 75-day interval, but we could speculate. But after that 75 days, the kingdom will officially commence. And that's what we're going to be talking about in the next uh, few weeks, two or three weeks probably. Um, and uh, that kingdom will uh, be made up of two facets. You'll have the first thousand years, often referred to as the millennium, because of what we read about in Revelation chapter 20. And then the new heavens and the new earth, often called the eternal state, meaning when time shall be no more. Um, and those two aspects of the kingdom are not the same. It's still part of the kingdom, and it, the, when Christ comes back to reign, the Bible teaches that he will reign forever and ever. He will take the throne of his father David forever. It's an eternal, never-ending kingdom. But there are some differences between the characteristics uh, in those uh, two time periods. 
namely because one of them is on this present earth as we now know it. Of course, it'll be quite a bit different because Christ will be on the throne, so sin will largely be held in check. You'll have more uh, peace and righteousness and equity and justice and so forth. But uh, the second part of the kingdom, the eternal aspect, this earth will be destroyed, recreated in sinless perfection, and in that sense, the Bible comes full circle uh, back to a pre-fall Edenic state like we've depicted in this uh, chart here. So the Bible tells a story of God's uh, creation, and we talked about this Wednesday night uh, in our study. By the way, Wednesday nights we begin uh, a study uh, on the book of Proverbs, kind of how to interpret Proverbs. It's part of our broader how to read and understand the Bible series. I was really encouraged by the the way that kicked off and really uh, just uh, blessed my uh, soul to kind of this discussion that we had and and just getting into the, the nitty-gritty of the book of Proverbs. But we talked about Wednesday how, you know, the Bible, of course, is God's way of saying, here I am, look at me, and it tells the grand meta-narrative of God's creation. So we know, according to Scripture, if you believe the Bible, that the earth is 6,000 years old. Now, if you believe Darwin, you think it's billions of years old, and we all evolved from a wet rock. But uh, the Bible teaches it's roughly 6,000 years old. God spoke the world into existence. He created a mature earth, um, which is the reason uh, that carbon-14 dating and some of these other uh, dating techniques that atheistic Darwinian evolutionists use to try to suggest that the earth is billions of years old don't work. Uh, God uh, created Adam and Eve, and right after they were created, Eve uh, said to, asked Adam, how old are you? And he said, oh, about one second. And she said, my, you look like you're 35. You know? He said, no, I'm only one second. You know, because God and God created oak trees that might have looked like, from our human perspective, they were hundreds of years old, but they had just been created. God created a mature earth, and so, but God at one point after creation decided He wanted to give His creation a more specific uh, details about Himself. So He began to you know, speak the words of Scripture or. The Holy Spirit began to inspire or carry along the writers of Scripture, starting with Moses, uh, that revealed everything God wanted us to know. So Peter later on says, we have everything we need for life and godliness right here in the written word. And the writing of Scripture lasted about 1,500 years using 40 different human authors on three different continents and three different languages. But by the time he finished at the end of the first century with the book of Revelation, God had given us everything we need. So when we read that story that's now contained in God's Word, we see a story that unveils the purposes of God in human history, and it's a story of creation and redemption. So it goes from creation to fall to redemption to recreation, ultimately coming full circle uh, back to the you know, new heavens and uh, the new earth. And of course, along the way, as we've talked about, God has a plan uh, for uh, all different types of groups, a church, the church, the nation of Israel, angels, demons, you name it. Uh, but he's working out his plan precisely as he said he would. So we've been talking about the second coming. Now we want to shift over and talk about what you see in purple there on the screen, the messianic kingdom. So before I open it up to questions, I want to sort of set the stage because next week we'll start looking at some great passages and detailed characteristics about what will be like, what life will be like when Christ finally takes the throne. And it's so encouraging to read passages like Isaiah 65 and Revelation 20 that talk about what you know life will be like. And, and right now, you know, we are bound in under 
uh, the curse of sin. We, we all deal with it. We struggle with it. We're going to talk about it today when we look at Acts chapter 8 um, in the worship hour. Um, and, uh, you know, the task of the believer is to do all that he or she can to uh, walk in the Spirit and not after the flesh, to try to reflect the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us because of our faith. But, you know, it's a tough battle. It's a tough world we live in. There are a lot of injustices. There are a lot of attacks. And, of course, as you've heard me say many times, as we get closer and closer to the return of Christ, we see an uptick in this spiritual battles and the spiritual warfare. And, you know, the devil is doing all he can and his demonic forces to try to uh, discourage and defeat and confuse and deceive. Big, the big one is deception. So uh, this is not, uh, you know, uh, for the faint of heart, you know, but we have all the resources we need through the indwelling Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And we have each other. The church is a big part of God's divine design in the present age to be able to encourage one another, minister to one another, uh, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. So we serve a good God and He's faithful, but let's face it, uh, it's a tough world. It's only going to get tougher if the Lord tarries us coming. But it won't always be this way. A better day is coming. And that's what the message of the kingdom is all about. That a better day is coming. And uh, Paul says, for example, in Romans 8, that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared uh, to the glory that shall be revealed someday. So we need to keep that in mind. So what I want to do is just take a moment to, uh, to take, make a comparison. That's not the comparison I'm looking for a comparison between the millennial phase of the kingdom and the eternal state. And I want to get you thinking about this, and then next week we'll dive in and describe each of the, the aspects of the coming kingdom in uh, greater detail. So we know that the millennium is exactly a thousand years, but the eternal state has no end of years, according to Scripture. So that's one difference. Um, the millennium takes place on the old heaven and old earth. Uh, with the new Jerusalem and so forth. The new heaven and new earth takes place on the recreated uh, heaven. So, and that's where the, the new Jerusalem comes into play. The millennium, there will still be sin. As long as this earth is still in existence under the curse of sin, and as long as there are still human beings being born in their fleshly bodies, sin's going to be a reality. Ephesians 2, 1 says we're born dead in our trespasses and sins. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore by one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. So sin is a reality as long as we're uh, in this body. Now in the millennium, uh, those of us who've been given our glorified bodies, which by that time will include church age saints and Old Testament saints, as well as tribulation saints who died, uh, we will not have to deal with sin any longer because the new covenant will be in force and we know from Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 that sin you know once the new covenant's in effect you don't sin but there will be people who enter the millennium at the end of the tribulation who survive let's go back to that diagram who survive this seven-year tribulation period in their physical bodies in other words they they believe the gospel they're born again they don't take the mark of the beast, and they're not martyred. See, we know from the book of Revelation, we spent a great deal of time going through that over the previous weeks, that many believers will be martyred for their faith and refusing to take the mark of the beast. 
but some won't. They'll they'll hide out. They'll be they'll they'll persevere until the end and endure until the end, and they'll end up uh, being alive to see Christ coming. It's that group that will enter the kingdom in their physical bodies, and over time they will uh, have children, and those children will grow up, and like every baby ever born, those children will need to place their faith in Jesus Christ someday. So over time, you will have. Uh, you will have the presence of sin in the millennium. Um, and especially after a thousand years. I mean, you think about how long a thousand years is, right? I mean, we uh, to put some of that in historical perspective, our country is only 246 years old, right? Is that right? 1776, two, yeah. It's 246 years old, and yet we all have this sort of view life through the lens of American exceptionalism, you know. Um, uh, we, we know that uh, if you think back a thousand years from today, what the world was like in the Dark Ages, lots changed since then. Wouldn't you agree? So a thousand years is a long time, especially when it's a thousand years of uh, perfect righteousness and peace and justice and, uh, and so forth. Uh, so over that time, you can imagine as people are repopulating the earth after the devastation of the tribulation period, then, you know, there's going to be a lot of people that need to know the Lord. And you'll also have to deal with sin. Now, as we'll talk about when we get into this in more detail, the difference will be sin will be swiftly dealt with and it will be accurately dealt with, right? I mean, one of the big, uh, I guess, uh, struggles that we face today, and we certainly face it in our own country, even though this is the greatest country in the world, the greatest criminal justice system in the world, it's still made up of fallen human beings, and so sometimes the innocent get punished, and sometimes the guilty go free, right? That's a problem, and that we cry out for that justice, and, and anybody that's been, uh, you know, unfairly accused or has personal experience with, you know, dealing with... Uh, people who've committed crimes and then get off scot-free, you know, you really feel that sense of injustice, right? Well, the difference will be when Christ is on the throne, we won't have jury trials, we won't have any room for error, it'll be an absolute perfection, and someone, uh, some sinner commits a crime, all you got to do is ask the king on the throne, did he do it, and he'll either give a thumbs up or a thumbs down, and it's done, there's no injustice at all. But there will be sin. By contrast, in the eternal state, no sin. Uh, no sin, because uh, we'll all be in our glorified state and uh, all be serving and fellowshipping the Lord for all of eternity. Uh, as I mentioned, in the millennium, obviously you're going to have some unglorified people, which is why there's sin. Now, we're using glorified there in the technical sense of Scripture, meaning when, when we, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. So when the final kingdom comes, the, new, the eternal state, this flesh and blood will go the way of all flesh and we will be tr translated or resurrected into a glorified body. Uh, but and, and so there will be some people there that haven't been glorified yet and then some there that have. But in the eternal state, everyone will be glorified. There will be no people in their physical bodies. Uh, in the millennium, you'll have some unsaved people, as I talked about, not at the beginning, Remember, at the beginning, when Christ comes back, see where it says second coming there, uh, when Christ comes back, he tells us in his own words that 
only going to be two kinds of people on the earth, the believers and unbelievers, the sheep and the goats. To the sheep he will say, Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. To the goats, the unbelievers, he will say, Depart from me into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So at that moment, when the kingdom begins, you will only have uh, you know, believers on the earth. So it's the exact opposite of the rapture, when one second after the rapture, there are only unbelievers on the earth. It's just the opposite, right? But over time, again, people that enter the kingdom in their physical bodies, not us, you know, because once we get our glorified bodies, you're neither married nor given in marriage. You can't consummate. You can't do the things that you can in your physical bodies. And we'll be coming back with Christ at his return, Revelation 19, to help rule and govern the kingdom. Old Testament saints will be resurrected also at the second coming, according to Daniel 12. Um, but the people that are in their physical bodies that get saved during the tribulation and live to tell about it, they will be the ones that enter the kingdom and could repopulate uh, the kingdom. Uh, so at first there won't be unsaved people, but over time you will have a, a, a population of uh, some unsaved people. By contrast, in the eternal state, uh, everyone will be saved. Uh, there will be death in the millennium. Uh, I, I think I referenced this a few weeks ago that I've put together an article on death in the millennium explaining theologically you know, where that fits into play in the millennium because it's my view that believers don't die in the millennium. That is, believers in their physical bodies won't die. But over time, uh, death uh, will be a reality for those unbelievers. In the eternal state, uh, there will be no death, of course. In fact, that's one of the first things Revelation 21 says, right? There shall be no more death. Uh, in the millennium, you've got the Jewish temple. You've got the Jewish sacrificial system. You've got, once again, God making Israel the center stage in his plan of the ages. And just like in the Old Testament times, all of the temple system was a shadow pointing to the ultimate reality of Christ. The same thing will be true in the millennium. It's a shadow pointing to the ultimate reality of Christ. One looked forward. In the millennium, it looks at. So it's just going to make it even fuller and more meaningful and more significant to, to know, uh, you know. I mean, imagine if Abraham, and I realize he was before the sacrificial system, but he in, in Genesis 22, he offers Isaac, you know, and God provides the lamb, and it's a picture, of course, of uh, the atoning work of God's Son and our Savior Christ. But imagine how meaningful that would have been to Abraham if Christ was standing right there watching. And he could make the connection, you know, not symbolically, but directly. So, yes, the Bible teaches that. And th those that struggle with that concept, I think, are just sort of being victimized by a thousand years of teaching that says the church has replaced Israel, the church is the new kingdom, we're living in the kingdom now, and they just don't see any reason why you would need a, a sacrificial system again. Well, I think that just shows a, a, a failure to really understand the teaching of the future for national Israel in Scripture, and it also it demonstrates a failure to understand the purpose of the sacrificial system to begin with. But when the eternal state comes... There is no temple. The triune God is the temple. Uh, the triune God is, is who we are all coming together uh, to worship. And you don't need the means to an end that Israel has served uh, throughout God's plan of the ages. In the millennium, we'll see the personal presence of Messiah. Again, he's sitting on the throne. 
Uh, he's God's anointed, like David talks about in Psalm 2. Uh, remember Psalm 2 talks about the Luciferian conspiracy as people, rulers of the earth, are conspiring with Satan and his demons to take over the world and usher in a one-world system. And David says God laughs at them because he knows where it's heading. And, and he says, and I think it's verse 4 or maybe 5, that he has installed his anointed on the throne. So from God's perspective, it's a done deal. The Messiah is going to take the throne. But as I said in the eternal state, you have the personal presence of the triune God. So we'll flesh all of this out in more detail in the, uh, in the weeks to come, but I wanted to kind of introduce it. And then also perhaps uh, there's a lot here. Uh, maybe uh, have this be a springboard for some questions. So let's, uh, let's transition now in the remainder of our time together. we got about 25 minutes or so and take questions. Yeah. Will there be a difference between what uh, raptured church-age saints do during the millennial phase of the kingdom and what they do during the eternal state? Uh, the, the, that's a great question. We will always have our identity. In other words, we'll always be the bride of Christ. Uh, Israel will always be God's chosen nation and so forth. Uh, and to the extent that we are a different group, there probably will be different uh, tasks and activities. But you do see in the eternal state, we don't have a lot of info on that. We see a little bit about it in Revelation 21 and 22, but even Revelation 21 and 22 kind of goes back and forth between millennial truth and eternal state truth. Same thing with Isaiah. You see at times in Isaiah where he's clearly talking about millennial truth, and sometimes he's talking about the eternal state. So we don't have a lot of data, but I think it's safe to assume that because our identity will be remain, that we will probably have different uh, things to, to do. But you do see in the eternal state, as you read Scripture, a, less distinctions and more of a coming together of we finally come back full circle to you know, the people of God together collectively worshiping God. Good question. Yeah? When Christ rose from the dead, did he have his glorified body at that point? Yeah, he did, and we see in the gospel accounts the uh, people's reaction to that, and uh, and so yeah. Now the, his he's God, so we we don't want to stretch the analogy too far and assume that we're going to have the exact same uh, capabilities as he does uh, because he's he's God. So just as in his physical body he was unique, uh, in his glorified body he was unique. But yeah, he had his glorified body, and he was and he. Ate and said he was hungry. And yeah, and he ate breakfast with the disciples on the shore and so forth. Sure. So. Yeah, and, and what did you say? He could walk through doors? Yeah. I've walked into a door before. <laughs> a sliding glass door. But. Practice, practice, practice. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So that is resurrection body. Do you see any distinction between that? You know, there's so much. The question is, is there a distinction between Christ's resurrection body as he appeared to thousands of people after the resurrection on earth before the ascension and his heavenly body, did you say, or yeah. kingdom body? Yeah, eternal body. Uh, yeah, I don't. that's a good question. Um, there's so much the Bible doesn't really address, at least not, uh, you know, plainly. 
although I'm sure if I thought about it, there's probably some verses that bear on that question. But I, I don't, I don't think so. I think the just as in the Mount of Transfiguration, he was transfigured, and on the Mount of Ascension, he went up, and they saw him go up into the clouds. Far as we can tell from Scripture, it's the same body, if you want to call it that. But even body is a bit of a misnomer because body, by its definition, and even the Greek word body, means physicality, atoms, the very atoms that make up who we are. And in 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 the eternal state, there is no. Uh, time, space, and matter continuum like we think of it here today. So I just can't wait to get there and find out. But I tell you what, we'll recognize him. No doubt about that. We'll recognize Jesus, and uh, and it'll be great to see him face to face. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the comment is when he comes back, everyone will will see him and know him. Um, certainly, uh, and, and you you added saved and unsaved. So let's talk about that for a second. In Matthew twenty four, um, it says um, that uh, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Matthew twenty four thirty. So, yes, everyone on earth will recognize him as the Messiah because they're either going to be standing before him at the judgment of the nations, Matthew 25, verses 31, or, or, yeah, 31 to 46, um, and they're going to be cast into the everlasting fire, or they're going to be told, hey, come ye blessed of my Father. So, yeah, there's no question that everyone will recognize him. But additionally... Not only at his second coming, but when he takes the throne and rules the kingdom, Jeremiah tells us everyone on earth will know about him from the least to the greatest, and no one will ever need to teach his neighbor, which is one of the reasons we know that the new covenant is not in force today because it conflicts with the words of Christ who said, go into all the world and teach the gospel. So we want to to make disciples. So um, the church is a foretaste or a foreshadowing of the glory to come in the kingdom. And just as we have the indwelling Holy Spirit now, it'll be universal indwelling for believers in the kingdom. But the difference is now we still have that old man. We're going to talk about that in the worship hour in Acts chapter 8. And so there's the struggle, Galatians 5, between and Romans 7. Paul describes it in his own life between the old man and the new man. And, uh, but that won't be there in the, in, the, you know, in the eternal state. So, yeah, everyone will know him. It's, uh, that's been God's plan all along. I mean, in the garden... Everybody knew God, right? Everybody meaning Adam and Eve. And had they not sinned, they would have had children, and their children would have had children. It would have been an incredible kingdom on earth already with people walking and talking with the Creator God. Sin entered the world, and it uh, corrupted the image of God in man. And over time now, 6,000 years, you've seen a lot of people that don't know the Lord. Now, the Bible says everyone on the earth should know Him because He's made Himself known through uh, natural revelation. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God and so forth. But um, many people harden their hearts and refuse to acknowledge him, and they die in unbelief. Yeah? So, um, during, during the thousand-year reign, everybody knows Jesus. Right? He's ruling. Right. But yet there's still sin. We still sin. We won't, but there will still be sin, and right? We still be sin. Right. And he will deal with that. 
that moment. Sure. Okay, so at the end of that thousand years, there's no sin? Absolutely, right. Once you enter the eternal state, no sin. See here, third one down on the right? No sin. So we all have our glorified bodies. Once you have your glorified body, you can't sin. So, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. It's my peripheral vision. Go ahead. In the millennium, obviously we're in our glorified bodies. And as the time goes on, you said there'll be some that'll be in their natural bodies because they're born. Will we just intermingle and be normal with them? Or will we have our own agenda? Or, um, and like you said, we don't witness to them, right? Will we know that they're not glorified? Will we know there's a difference? So, a uh, couple things. The question is, in the, in the kingdom, when we're in our glorified bodies and then there's people in their physical bodies, and will we be intermingling with them? Uh, will we just be normal, I think is the word you used. If you're normal now, you'll be normal then. If you're not normal now, I don't know what to tell you. But, um, no, and then you also said uh, we won't be witnessing. Let me clarify. I think we will still be witnessing, but not in the sense of there is a God. You know, uh, you know, to, it'll be everybody will know him, but the witnessing, the evangelistic enterprise will be if you want to be saved from the penalty of sin, you need to put your trust in that guy over there in Jerusalem, the one you saw give the state of the world address last January. You know, that's the guy you need to trust. He died for your sins. He's the risen lamb. Uh, he's worthy to take the throne, as we read about in Revelation 4 and 5. Trust him and you'll be saved. So there will still be an evangelistic component, but it won't take on the same apologetic aspect as it might today um, but yes we will be interacting absolutely in the same way that the disciples interacted with the risen savior we'll be interacting we'll know each other you know we will look different you know we won't have our physical bodies you know but we'll still be i'll still be jb you know you'll still be david you'll still be you know that and so forth so um but but yeah we're going to be definitely all cohabiting the, the whole earth, uh, inhabiting the earth together. Yeah. All right, over here. I see that hand, finally. <coughs> Do the people with glorified bodies sacrifice? I think uh, there's going to be, the question is, do people with glorified bodies sacrifice? I think everybody will come up to Jerusalem, Isaiah talk, talks about, for the festivals and sacrifices. It doesn't differentiate between glorified and non-glorified. I think we'll have different roles to play. You know, remember Jesus said that to the disciples, they'll be sitting on the 12 thrones with him. So, uh, but we will all be a part of that that system. Yes. Yeah. When Moses and Elijah were on the mountain with Jesus, were they in their glorified bodies as well? Yeah, it seems like it. Let's go to that passage. The question is, when Moses and Elijah were appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, so that's Matthew 17, were they in their glorified bodies? So, what's interesting about the transfiguration experience is that Jesus was giving his disciples a lesson. Remember, he intentionally uh, took Peter, James, and John with him. It wasn't like he went up on the mountain Peter, James, and John just decided to follow. This was intentional. He brought them with him, uh, chapter 17, verse 1. But he was trying to teach them something and to give them a more specific uh glimpse of the kingdom and we know that because right before that remember there were no chapter breaks in the original uh, gospel the original bible in any of them Uh, so matthew's account 
right before chapter 17, verse 1, he has Jesus saying, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here, some standing here, who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, again, people that pull verses out of context, uh, millennialists and others who think the kingdom is now and the church is the new Israel, they'll say, see, Jesus said the kingdom was going to come in the days of the first century. That's not at all what Jesus was, was saying, and we, we know that because later on he says, I'm going to take the kingdom from you and give it to your future nation who's worthy of it. And he, and, he, and he also says, I'm going to go away for a while and come back after a long time to establish the kingdom, Matthew, or Luke 19. He says things like, uh, you know, uh, he talks about the signs of his coming. You know, um, when you see these things, then you know my coming is near. So clearly he wasn't suggesting that the kingdom was going to come in the first century. What he was talking about is, he knew he was about to give Peter, James, and John a glimpse of the kingdom. So then he goes on and says, uh, or this is Matthew's narrative, Jesus led them up on the high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking. So it's, it's interesting. The text doesn't describe them as glorified, but... Uh, it follows that since uh, they're appearing there, they're appearing in, in some, as I said, noticeable form. You're always going to be, you know, you're always going to be Moses. You're always going to be Elijah. Uh, but we know from Daniel that they don't get their permanent glorified body, just as Jesus didn't have his glorified body at that moment either. He didn't get it till after the resurrection, uh, until the second coming. So it appears that they were, you know, somehow. Uh, present in some uh, form post-death, so it wasn't physical body because those their bones had decayed long ago. Uh, but somehow God allowed them to be reconstituted and give give a glimpse of them, and uh, it wasn't just a mirage because they were uh, talking with Jesus. And then, of course, you know the rest of the story, Peter recognizing the, the momentous occasion and the weight of the moment, he says, wow, this is great. Let's make some tabernacles, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. In other words, let's go ahead and usher in the kingdom right now. And uh, forget my nine colleagues down at the bottom of the mountain, you know. Sorry, guys. You know, we're going to have the kingdom up here. And, of course, that's when God speaks. Um, and this is one of the lessons, I think, that Jesus wanted the disciples to get. As God says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. In other words, listen to Him. Uh, and so on and so forth. So a lot of people have pointed out that another way that this transfiguration foreshadows the kingdom is that you have all of the, all of the people that will be in the kingdom, the people groups that will be in the kingdom represented there. So you have living believers in their physical bodies in the form of Peter, James, and John. You have Elijah, who represents uh, a believer in his glorified state, but who never died, at least according to the physical record. Remember, Elijah was kind of raptured or whatever. And then you have Moses, who represents a believer in his glorified state who died. And, of course, you have the king. Well, that's what you're going to have in the kingdom. You're going to have the king, Jesus, on the throne, glorified saints, the church and Old Testament saints, and physical saints in their in their physical body so uh, anyway I don't know is the short answer but clearly 
what we know is that they get their glorified body at the second coming and they had some type of representative body in that moment. Now, did I did you ask your question? You did. Another one. It was okay, we'll allow it. <laughs> that's a good question, and that's what I was alluding. So the question is, do the unglorified saved people in the kingdom still sin? And that's where my article comes into play. So I'll answer it, but you have to promise not to judge me and at least read my article before you uh, think I'm crazy. But my answer is no. I believe that according to comparing Scripture with Scripture, the short version is death is only the result of sin Believers don't die, ergo believers can't sin. That's that's kind of the, that's ten pages down into one sentence, but yeah. So no, I don't think once you get saved in the kingdom, if you're in your physical body, so you're one of these people that entered the kingdom in your physical body, you survived the tribulation. It won't be any of you. Um, let me think about that. <laughs> I mean, conceivably, it could be because if you're here or you're listening or watching the video and you're not saved and the rapture happens today and then you get saved and then you survive the tribulation, that could be you. But for all intents and purposes, if we're all believers in Christ, we would be raptured. Um, so if you get into the kingdom and you get, you know, or actually we'd only be talking about uh, people that were uh, saved during the kingdom. Or no, they could be, a, they could be entering the kingdom in their physical body. So either way, if you're a believer in your physical body in the kingdom, uh, once you get saved, whenever that is, the new covenant is in force, and you are uh, somehow translated in that moment into the new covenant body, which I think is a glorified body. It's not a resurrection, but it's similar to the way the church is translated at the rapture. So there are some of us in this room, if the Lord comes back in our lifetime, and it's looking more and more like He will, can't say for sure, but it looks like that, who, who will not die. We will not have to face death. And if and that's why 1 Thessalonians 4 says, when Christ comes back, the dead in Christ, those believers in the church age who have died, will rise first, meaning their bodies will be resurrected to meet their soul, which is already in heaven. The rest of us will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, 1 Corinthians 15. So I see a corollary between that and what's going to happen with believers and their physical bodies in, uh, in the kingdom. So, yeah. This one... Okay, so that was Isaiah 41, 15 through 16. Mm -hmm. The question is, does that mean like we're running some big old like earth moving machine or what is it? <laughs> <laughs> so the question is, does that mean we're running a big earth moving machine? Um, so first of all, this isn't talking about us, it's talking about the, children, the nation of Israel. Mm -hmm. And this is in the section of Isaiah where uh, he's beginning to talk about the, a better day is coming, the future kingdom, and it, it climaxes in chapter 65 and 66. So if you know much about Isaiah, you know it's divided into two sections. There's 66 chapters in our English Bible. 
just like there's 66 books of the Bible, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are about judgment and their disobedience and got the consequence of that. And then you get to chapter 40 and it begins with that famous phrase, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. And the rest of Isaiah is about the future comfort. So I just see this as a reference to the fact that Israel is going to be uh, victorious at Armageddon and ultimately uh, experience God's blessing in the kingdom. So, all right. Yes. And then we'll come up here. Yeah. So the question is, what will the sacrificial system look like? It will look like just like it did in the Old Testament. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, again, remember, the purpose of the sacrifices was to point the way to Christ. And it, will it, was never, it never saved anybody. It wasn't, you know, it was just, as the book of Hebrews makes very clear, it was a shadow of the substance. And that substance still exists. Absolutely. He's, he's the substance. Where he is is not relevant. He's the substance. And all of those things um, point to him, and it's going to just make them even more meaningful. Because as Jesus told uh, the woman at the well, salvation is of the Jews. I mean, God's chosen, God's purpose. Remember, we talked about the purposes, uh, if I can find it here, of Israel and the purposes of the church. The purposes for Israel were to. Uh, be the center stage in the global kingdom of peace someday and uh, to be an ultimate witness to, to Yahweh and uh, the Creator and His goodness and, and what happens when you follow Him. And so really the kingdom is, you know, after all that Israel has been through with you know, Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome and the revived Roman Empire, it's their chance to say, see, we told you so. We are God's chosen nation. We are the apple of God's eye, and you need to do it our way, right? So, yeah, there's, uh, you know, again, the, the, the notion that the church has replaced Israel and therefore anything related to Israel is over and done with is just not the testimony of Scripture. So when the Bible comes back full circle, Israel's center stage, again, you're going to see a reinstitution of all of the sacrificial system that we saw in Israel in the past. It'll just have a more meaningful uh, significance because the Christ, the, the, the Messiah, will be sitting right there on the throne. So let's go to Nancy and then we'll go to you, uh, Kel. Uh, about rest. So the question is, in our glorified bodies, will we need rest? I imagine there's a passage that would bear on that answer. I just don't have it at my fingertips. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we know we're not going to be married or given in marriage. So that means that, you know, marriage is an earthly institution. I'm just kind of thinking out loud as I work my way through it. Um, the reason Jesus said, uh, or that's the reason our vows, until death do us part, right? So that's the reason when I do weddings, a lot of times young couples will come to me and say, you know, uh, you know, I'm, here's what we want our vows to say, Pastor. We want to say, you know, he's my soulmate or she's my soulmate. And I always say, no, I'm not going to say that because you're not soulmates. <laughs> you're earthly mates, right? 
Now, you'll obviously, because you've been married on earth, you're going to have a special relationship. And, and in heaven, you'll, you'll probably be closer to your spouse than anyone else, but you're not going to be united in marriage. Marriage is an earthly institution. Um, so I don't know why I thought of marriage when I was thinking about rest, but uh, 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 so I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think um, so many of the other earthly activities you know, are present, like we talked about eating and stuff, so I would think so. And there's probably a simple answer to that. I'm going to get emails from people smarter than me that listen to this, and they're going to say, why didn't you think of this? But, yeah, I'm going to, that's the best I can do. Sorry. Yeah, Kelly. The answer on the Jewish temple still seems wanting the answer, I should say, because that's part of the criticisms they'll make of dispensational theology. That was the shadow. Yeah, so the, 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 what I would suggest is when you were in the kingdom and you're going up to Jerusalem to perform the sacrifices, you can make an appointment with Christ and ask him. <laughs> because, because um, I mean, no, I don't mean to be, uh, be snide, but it, I, it, whether it sounds lacking or wanting or not is not relevant. What does the Bible say is all that matters. And the Bible is not ambiguous about this. You have to spiritualize it and wipe it all away as some kind of mystical interpretation to say that it's not going to be there. And I just take it literally uh, that, that we're going to be doing that. But yeah, I, I think it's we're all prone to see Scripture through the lens of our culture and what we've been taught. And remember, for a thousand years, the church was not allowed to read the Bible without being burned at the stake. They were told from Roman Catholicism that you are the kingdom, the Pope is the king, and this is the way it is. And we this not notion that, and we we're also, there was no Israel on the map. There was not an Israel on your Rand McNally map until 1948. So, of course, people find it hard to believe. Most of the commentaries that you read say, oh, this must be symbolic. Uh, and then they, they defend that by misunderstanding the book of Hebrews. Just because something was a shadow doesn't mean that shadow might not reappear. The shadow, the point of the shadow analogy, and that's the term that the writer of Hebrews uses, is just that what you are seeing in your system was a shadow of the real thing. The real thing has come. You don't need to go back to that in the present church age. Remember, in the first, and it was in the 60s AD when Hebrews was written, they were contemplating reverting to Judaism, which was not in place and is not in place today. Christ, you know, the church is not Israel, and the Judaistic system has been set aside temporarily, Romans 9 through 11. So today it would be wrong to institute the sacrificial system. Because that's not what the church is called to do. And these Jewish Christians, because of fear of persecution from Nero, were contemplating going back to the Jewish system because the Jewish system was still in cahoots with Rome and under protection. And, and, and the writer's arguing, no, 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 don't you understand that this, this you know, why would you, why would you be satisfied with the shadow when you've got the substance? But what's going to happen is, and I, I remember when I talked about that in Hebrews, I used Plato's cave as an illustration. In the kingdom, it won't be like Plato's cave. We will see the shadow and the one casting the shadow, and it'll just make it that much uh, fuller. So, no, I totally get it. I don't really claim to know all of the reasons why. All we can do is try to stick to what Scripture says, and we know that it's uh, it's going to happen. So, we got to shut her down. I'm very sorry, but it's it's we're five minutes over time already. But 
we're going to do more of this. I want to try to maybe cover less ground each week and allow more time for discussion. I think that's instructive. You guys do a great job. You're some of the smartest. This is the smartest church I've ever been a part of. I mean, you guys are brilliant, and I love you and, and really mean that. And so, uh, and I've gotten lots of great feedbacks from online viewers as well that we, we they like doing the Q&A. So we'll start next week with some more about the millennium and some of the characteristics of the millennium, but I'll allow plenty of time uh, for questions. All right? Well, thank you guys. We will dismiss and then kick off at 10 o'clock here in the building. And then for those of you watching the live stream, we start the live stream at about 10.30 Mountain Time, give or take five minutes, depending on how the flow of the service goes. All right, God bless. Thanks, JB.